אתה יודע, אני אלווה את זה במנגינה. אוי, אל תתחיל, אל תתחיל. לא, אל תתחיל, כי זה מזלזל, זה מזלזל, זה לא לעניין, זה מוריד את הרמה, אתה ראש הממשלה, זה לא ZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANGZANG
turn out at the end of the day to be crucial. I'm not skeptical. I want to focus this inquiry by reviewing the polls briefly. The pro and anti-BB blocks of parties were at 60-60 each uh, in my average from February 21st. After about eight more polls came out since then, I'm talking about public polls, Netanyahu's block is currently at 58, which is why it's not that I do or don't agree with you. It's that we see the empirical erosion. By the way, that's exactly what his loyalist coalition block of parties got in March 2020. But what's interesting is that the erosion in his block from 60 seats two weeks ago to 58 now is pretty much coming from Likud. Likud had an average of 30 seats in the polls two weeks ago. Now it's at 28. This is a very small shift in polling terms. Not necessarily significant, except that it is a trend. So, Anshul, where do you think those votes are going? Well, they're going to two parties, mainly to Yamina and New Hope. But they're also going to the third party, which is usually called in, in Israel the beach party, where people are going, who, go, who go to the beach and don't bother to vote on, on election day. March 23rd, weren't we really beach weather? But You should know that Israel has very high turnout. It's very hard to find a Western democracy we're, we're with higher turnout we're, than Israel. We're aware of that. But still, even with Israel's high turnout, there still are a number of seats worth which stay at home. And you're the pollster, so you're the expert, but the accepted wisdom is usually that Likud... And other parts of the centre-right are softer when it comes to high turnout. High turnout, mainly, and correct me if I'm wrong, Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, national religious, centre-left, then they could a bit lower, and then the Arab sector the lowest. So Netanyahu always forgot about former Soviets who have a lower voting rate in true, general. Not true. huge difference, but a true. significant difference. But Netanyahu always believes in his campaigns that turnout is a huge, huge factor for him. And Netanyahu's record is such that we should take what he thinks seriously. But there's another interesting thing that's happening with the Likud vote. So, as you said, Likud is down to 28 in more or less all the polls now, sort of very slow descending trajectory for quite a while now. But here's another interesting point. We're seeing from the pollsters who uh, specialize in the Arab sector, mainly Yusuf Maklada, saying that there may be as many as two seats worth of Arab-Israeli voters in this upcoming election. So not only is Likud down to 28, it's down to 28 when it's already getting a boost of two seats of Arabs. Now, here's an interesting question. The polls we're seeing in the media now, which assume to show the entire Israeli uh, electorate, do the 28 seats that Likud are getting there include the two seats that Arab Israeli pollsters are seeing? And if so, Likud's vote is down to just 26 seats of its own base, which is very low. And you've done a lot of work surveying the Likud electorate. You'll agree that this is a very bad showing for Netanyahu. Or perhaps the mainstream pollsters are missing those two seats and Likud is actually on 30. What do you think? I think it could be either. We do often see in the last several cycles that the biggest parties, and right now Likud is the only biggest party in the polls, tends to get a lot of the 11th hour votes. So if they were polling, you know, 25 in 2015, they ended the race with 30 seats. Actually, they were polling it lower than 22, that. 22, 23. 22, 23. 23. Weeks, yeah. And the same thing happened in every election cycle. So it's, you know, the undecideds deciding. It's the people who may not have uh, said they were going to vote, coming out to vote and, and voting for Likud. So I think it could be a hidden Jewish vote that right now is just playing around with other ideas still. But you could be right. I think that one thing the pollsters may be missing is an accumulation of baby fatigue. And because this is, you know, the main challenges in Netanyahu, Yamina, and New Hope, which are new parties, it's very difficult to find exactly how much movement has been away from Likud. This may be wishful thinking, 
but I think that we've seen it in the way he's looked in the recent uh, interviews he gave this week. True, he keeps losing it and saying strange things like, buck up, buck up, there's two and a half weeks ago, anything can happen, but it could seems to be in trouble. It's not going up. And the successful vaccination campaign is not helping Likud at all. It's a retention campaign. It's keeping most of his voters, but not doing much to help them. Uh, right. now, listen, no, it's not even keeping. They got 36 and now they're down to 28. I want to point out that there are also critical national issues on the voters' minds and on very rare occasion in the party's press releases, too. So we had big news this week. Uh, the Israeli Supreme Court, sitting as the High Court of Justice, ruled that Jewish converts in Israel who underwent reform or conservative conversion are entitled to citizenship. But listening to the ultra-Orthodox Haredi parties or reading Israel Hayom, you would think this ruling was a step towards the next great catastrophe of the Jewish people. These parties and papers warned of a great and terrible rift among the Jews. It felt like Tisha B'Av. And Torah Judaism made an ad that compared reform and conservative Jews to dogs. Which has since been taken off of Facebook. By Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, by Facebook. They said it does not reflect our values. Angel, is this important for the elections? I'm not sure it has a direct implication on the election, certainly not on the, the different blocks and the balance between them. No one who was a fan of the Supreme Court before this or critic of the court is going to change their mind after this ruling. It will only harden their beliefs, and I don't think it's going to motivate any voters who are planning to stay home to go and vote. Conversion is an issue which excites a, f- a small part of the Israeli population, excites them in a major way, but still, it's not a big part. It's not going to change people's minds. There's one place on the political spectrum where it may have some kind of an effect, and that's the intriguing battle between two Haredi parties, United Torah and Shas, on the one hand, and religious Zionism, the party of Kahanists and uh, ultra-religious nationalists. Let's not forget supremacists. Jewish supremacists, certainly, uh, led by Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich on the other, and we're already seeing this in the polls and the Haredi community we know is notoriously difficult to poll you know that better than anyone else but we're starting to see a small but perhaps significant shift of perhaps of as much as a seat's worth of voters perhaps more away from those parties particularly away from Matthew Torah Judaism towards religious Zionism and this means if the pollsters have managed to really uh, register what's happening amongst the Haredi voters, is that especially young Haredi voters who are angry at the lack of leadership within their own community over the last year during the pandemic are looking for an anti-establishment party. And there's no more anti-establishment party than religious Zionism. Smotrich and Bengvir have themselves over the years tried to appeal quite heavily towards Haredi voters. And I know this from talking to many people in United Torah Judaism, but also in Shas, they're worried and one thing that the High Court ruling on conversions could help the traditional Haredi parties to do is to be more anti-establishment, to launch another attack on the High Court, and they think that perhaps they can bring those young Haredi voters back home. Right. So I think this is actually putting the issue of the Supreme Court and the role of the judiciary in Israeli society back on the table. It has sparked a thousand calls from right-wing religious parties, the Haredi parties, for an override law in the Knesset, uh, which would allow the Knesset to quash a court ruling. Uh, And at least a few demand from those parties that this be part of the coalition negotiations, which, if that becomes part of the mainstream discourse, could uh, bring the issue back to centrists and left-wingers and some of the right who want to oppose that position. So we'll see. Now, let's talk about another minor issue in Israeli society, money. In every Western democracy and most other Western democracies, voters ask themselves 
am I better off than I was four years ago? And if not, let's throw the bums out. It seems like it's only in Israel uh, where <laughs> the economy is sort of a mushy thing. There's barely any distinction between left, right, and center. But some of the parties are trying to keep the economy on the agenda. Naftali Bennett uh, has been talking about his Singapore plan, which is sort of an economic plan that looks a lot like Reaganomics to me. And remember, Netanyahu himself released an economic plan earlier in the campaign, but these have dropped off the discussions. We are in a global crisis. Israel has up to 20% unemployment following the corona year. Anshul, are any of these economy appeals working? I don't think so. And, you know, there's the old truism that Israelis vote on security and identity. They don't vote on the economy. In recent elections, it's been Israelis vote about yes, BB, no, BB. They don't vote about the economy. This election is about BB and COVID and also the, the economic aspects of COVID. But I think Israelis are more focused on the more general management of the Netanyahu government of this crisis. I don't think that uh, the economy is going to have a huge effect. And in the last few days, the Bennett's uh, Singapore plan has become almost a running joke in the media. He's almost stopped talking about it. It hasn't succeeded in capturing uh, the public uh, imagination. People don't seem to be taking Bennett seriously enough. And, you know, BB is BB because his fans and even some of his begrudging critics all think that he's a financial wizard. Mr. Economy. And it's, but it's not going to change the way people vote. The Bibi vote, if it goes down, I think is mainly because of fatigue, not because people think Bibi's not good on the economy. But maybe people think, and that's, and that's the interesting thing we don't know yet, that perhaps Bibi is suddenly loses touch. But it's not necessarily to do with the economy. It's to do, I think, with things across the board. Okay, well, this leads into a question that I get a lot from you know, people asking me. Why do the lower socioeconomic uh, strata of Israeli society vote for the right wing, which seems to be against their interests? Now, we hear that in the U.S. too, but in Israel, this question is really a euphemism a lot for what Israelis really mean when they talk about class, which is for decades now, the discussion is a stand-in for a particular stereotype. Uh, the working class marginalized Mizrahi who brought Likud to power in 1977. And I say all of that in quotation marks because it's become a far more complicated question. Who is the Mizrahi vote? That has to be in quotation marks too, because among Mizrahim, we have to first ask how many of them are working class or not? How many of them are living in the what we consider the marginalized areas of the country or living in the major urban centers? How many have become mainstream? Their votes are spread out between Shas, Likud, and other parties. Are they even a voting constituency? So we have the perfect guest here to discuss it with us, Rachel Azaria, who from 2008 to 2015 was a member of the Jerusalem City Council and deputy mayor. She has been an advocate for gender equality and fighting gender segregation advanced by some of the Haredi communities in Jerusalem. Azaria was also elected to the 20th Knesset on behalf of Kulanu, the party chaired by Moshe Kahlon, and was a member of the Finance Committee, the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, and the Ethics Committee. Uh, she left national politics ahead of the April 2019 elections and has recently published her new book, Guided Revolution, the first book in Hebrew on how to make social change in Israel. We're hoping you can give us the keys to that mission. Hi, Rachel. Hi, so happy to be here. Rachel, you are part Mizrahi. You were a prominent member of Knesset in a party whose identity was really focused on economic and social concerns, the promising but short-lived breakaway from Likud called the Kulanu Party, all of us, from 2015 to 2019. And what was your party trying to do? So I think it wasn't clear also to my party what we're trying to do, and I wasn't clear to Israeli society. And I think that it was left vague 
for political reasons to keep different options open. I think that's why it was a very short-living party. But I think that what we did do in a way is when we talk about uh, economic issues, we're really also talking about Mizrahi issues. In Israel, we have classes, even though we don't discuss it, it's not something that is very, you, you can't talk about it. Why can't we talk about it? We can't talk about it. And, and I think the reason is, and we go back to when the State of Israel was born, a very short history lesson. Um, I'll talk about my family. Uh, my father was born in Tunis. And in his Brit, the person that was responsible of, you know, who can make Aliyah and when you can immigrate and how it works, came to the Brit and he promised my grandfather that they're going to be the next family that will move to Israel. So that's why my father was named Israel. My grandfather, he was very Zionist. He was very excited to make Aliyah and it was a big deal. He immediately sold the business, sold the house, and he came already with, you know, the baggage and everything and asked, okay, when are we making Aliyah? And he said, no, not, not today, not today, not today. For six years, they didn't make Aliyah. And the reason is because my late grandfather, he was blind. And at the time, there was a decision in the Israeli government that all the immigrants from North Africa, you can't have anyone yeah, with any illness. From Europe or from the United States, you can make Aliyah with any illness. But from North Africa, you couldn't. Now, these are scars that many families are carrying throughout the years. And also when they came to Israel. So they made Aliyah and they were in absorption camps. And that has to be said that at the time, everyone was in absorption camps. But very quickly, the Ashkenazis found a way. And everyone has their miraculous story how as Ashkenazi family, you could find your way. But it was only, you know, miraculously, you could find your way out of there. You happen to have a cousin living you in You happen to have a cousin and something and this one and that one and you got a job and whatever. But you don't have Mizrahim with the same kind of story. And they stayed in the absorption camps that later on became development towns often. When you drive throughout Israel, you find mostly in the periphery, you can find kibbutzim and next to it, the development towns that are very different. It's so true. I just have to say that this is personal history. I spent one year when I was 17 on a little kibbutz in the Negev right next to Ofakim. Two different worlds. And this is something that, you know, I think that in English, it's sometimes easier to say. In Hebrew, you can't really talk about these issues. Everything that has to do with distributed uh, justice, anything that has to do with trying to find the way to see if we can redesign the Israeli society and take into consideration what happened in the past. Now, when you think about it, that the people that founded the state of Israel and were in the kibbutzim are the former Israeli Labor Party. You understand why it is so hard for Mizrahi voters to vote for the Labour Party, because they, they were the people that did what we're talking about. Now, when you go to the history, to Israeli political history, you can see that there were the Black Panthers in the 70s, early 70s. And they went to Golda Meir and they said, listen, we are very poor. There was a very famous story that they went and they... Uh, stole the milk from the wealthy neighborhoods in Jerusalem and they brought them to the very poor Mizrahi neighborhoods that were also, you know, on the border. And when they went to Golda Meir and they said, you know, we're very poor, we're too many people living in a house, it can't be that, you know, there's no, and everything at the time was a governmental housing. And they said, you know, this is something that has to be taken care of. So she basically said, they're not very nice people. And she just... <laughs> yeah. They were kind of, you know, pushed away 
and there was no real discussion and they were and it was a time that there were huge demonstrations my father was slightly active in these demonstrations and then later on we're talking about the early 70s what happened was during that time a begging that later on became likud the time was khirut it was also a party of mainly ashkenazim okay and it was a very small party And what happened, and this is research that I read by Professor Nisim Leon from uh, Barilan University, what happened was that Yitzchak Shamir, he was responsible for, you know, working with the crowd, and he went and he changed the entire format of Chirut and the Likud, and he created what's called today Merkaz Likud, the center of the Likud, and that's the place where you get the power, okay? And what he did is that he said, if you bring in more people, we are going to share the power. And it's interesting that what Shamir did, this change of the Likud structure, is the early 1970s, and a few later, lo and behold, Likud replaces labor. That, that's the story. He opened it for the Mizrahim. And from that day, the Likud is the home of the Mizrahim. And he, he was brilliant, Yitzhak Shamir. He did it. It wasn't begging. People don't know it. It was Yitzhak he came, Shamir. He came from Mossad. He, yeah, he was a brilliant person. He got it. He realized where a, a possible constituency is. He realized that they're upset with the, the labor, that when they came and asked the labor to help them, when they came to Golda Meir, the Black Panthers, she wouldn't give a hand. And he said, come join us. We're your home. And from then till this day, the Mizrahim, They're the largest and strongest asset that the Likud has. And I think that that is something that people on the left wing don't understand. And are they voting based on this legacy? Or are they voting because their identity as Mizrahim somehow connects with ideology of Likud? Both. And they're also voting because they have power in the Likud. Because you have so many Mizrahim that are strong members of the Likud. And at the end of the day, you know, it became, it's their home. And it's like, this is very strong. And also, yes, there is a lot of fear. And these are issues that were never resolved, the way the Mizrahim were treated when the State of Israel was born. And it's not only that they weren't resolved. Till this day, this is an issue that can't really be tackled. Why can't it be tackled? I'll, I'll give you an example, okay? Um, there is a river in the Bechan Valley, which is the hottest place in Israel, really. It is burning in the summer. And there's this river, the Asi River, um, that is in a kibbutz. Okay, now you have, just like I was describing throughout Israel, you have development towns around the kibbutz. And they weren't allowed to come in the, you know, burning summer to come and, uh, and, swim. and swim in the river. And whenever they would come and swim, the kibbutznikim would steal their clothes. They would say, you know, that's not your place, whatever. A few years ago, they tried to get to some kind of agreement. And now there is a, a group, a very actually enthusiastic and very, uh, you know, serious people from Bechean, Mizrahim, that they say, we want distributive justice. We want, you know, to open the river for everyone. And you can see how no party in the left wing is willing to say that this is the right thing to do. They're not even willing to say this is the right thing to do and this, was what have to, this is what has to be done. We will negotiate it with the kibbutz, which that's what you would expect left wing parties to do throughout the world. And I think that if this can't be done until this area is solved, We're going to continue having, you know, right-wing winning time after But time. Rachel, I mean, you talk about the failure of labor, of the old Israeli center-left to, to address this issue. Ehud Barak, when he became labor leader in 97, apologizing to the Mizrahim on behalf of labor 
in Lidorotam. And he was roundly derided for this. I mean, he became an object of mockery. But since then, we've also had two Labour leaders from that Moroccan alia, Amir Peretz, two terms as leader, and Avi Gabe in between that. And all this together has failed still to change Labour's uh, uh, image, not just Labour's image, but the whole centre-left image. Meretz is, I think, very has a very Ashkenazi image as well. Why has nothing worked? I think the major change has to be in the in the left wing, and that's why I brought the Asi River story because you know it, it's right. I mean, you're right. Ehud Barak apologized, which was almost weird. I have to say, I don't think he had to apologize. I think he had to more acknowledge what the Mizrahim have done for the state of Israel. Even that is something that for years the Mizrahim couldn't join the you know high ranked units in the army, and it was only open Fashkenazim. And then there was this you know history of the Ashkenazim, they're the ones that really paid the price for the state of Israel. Historically, throughout the years, this was something that was very, very heavily, you know, it's it's very strong in Israeli society. And it's not about apologizing. I think it's about really making room and making it possible. What, why did it bring the Asi River example? And why am I so excited about this campaign? And I'm Well, first of all, we should say it was a huge issue when it happened issue. a couple months ago. Huge issue. Because that whenever I bring up this issue or anyone brings up this issue, everyone says, come on, that's history. It's over. No one knows if you're a Mizrahi or Ashkenazi. The Shed Adati. Yeah, it's like... The, the devil that Israelis don't want to... Yeah. The, to, to have the genie, the genie the in the bottle. The genie yeah. in the Exactly. Don't open the bottle. Keep it the genie. And, and also, I have to say, I'm half American or, and you know, and I don't look Mizrahi and my last name is Azaria. I can hear that from Ashkenazim often that they will tell me, you know, you're fortunate that your name is Azaria, not Ben Lulu. Because Ben Lulu, everyone would know you're Mizrahi. And I say, when you say that, don't you realize that it's kind of prejudice to say that? And this is a, a notion that can't be tackled in Israeli society. But it is a very, very strong, like Jungian idea that a lot of people make their decisions by this notion, but it's not some another notion that can be tackled really upfront. And when I was in the Kulano party, I was pushing towards bringing this idea out to the table. I thought that could be, you know, also a healing movement and something that can really change. And everyone was afraid. Even but, but the, even she, other leadership was Moshe Kachlon. Even and Moshe even Moshe Kachlon didn't really he was hesitant if to talk about it. Even though, you know, it is very clear. And, you know, he went to Harvard and really he has nothing to be ashamed of. And he's a very, very, very uh, successful politician, definitely at the time. No one wants to talk about this issue. But why do they have to talk about it? I mean, if this is a matter of identity and Kachlon is Mizrahi and you have a Mizrahi background and you represented the social and economic concerns. I mean, why wasn't that a natural draw? I mean, it was natural. You got 10 seats in the beginning, Mm -hmm. but then basically collapsed to, you know, so low that it wasn't worth running again. Yeah. So where's the where's the disconnect? Why was it not more attractive precisely for that constituency? Or you're saying they maxed out on that constituency? No, I think what happened very quickly, the Likud, right those years, the Likud suddenly was Miri Regev and everything started talking about this very, very, very uh, aggressive Mizrahi kind of identity, talking about, I don't know if you remember Miri Regev, uh, uh, she was interviewed and she talked against Chekhov. She How could really, I forget? Yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting because Miri Regev herself, earlier in her career, especially when she was in the army and she was, idea of spokeswoman, people were barely aware whether she's Mizrahi Ashkenazi. She was very sort of middle of the road, hard to define Israeli. And even when she began to enter politics, her first port of call was labor. She was trying to get a job. But she began 
marketing herself as the ultimate Moroccan Israeli only when she joined Likud. Sorry, not immediately when she joined Likud, later on. Yeah. Right. Okay, those were the years, the years of Kulanu. I think that was an opportunity to talk about the Mizrahi issue and the people that really, you know, jumped on it and really understood the power of the Mizrahi issue were the Likud. But in a very populist way. In a very populist. And that's part of the tragedy. Because instead of using this discussion and turning it into something that we can talk about the past and we can talk about what happened and we can see how we can change the future, that's not, that isn't happening. But I also have to say that until the left wing in Israel will realize that this is a very important issue that has to be tackled, they basically, they're giving away a huge constituency to the right wing, to the Likud, and not even fighting over it. So we've talked about the Mizrahi issue as a Likud versus the old guard, Labour, the old mm-hmm. centre-left. But there's another Mizrahi party we haven't even spoken about, that's Shas. Now, Dalia and I were discussing this yesterday, because Dalia has done a lot of research on this. Shas is seen by a large part of the media, even outside Israel, as one of Israel's two ultra-orthodox parties. But that's a bit of a misnomer, because how much, 39%? We found that 39% of people who currently say they're voting Shas self-identify as Haredi, so and uh, another so 35% who say they identify as national religious. So that's over 60% who are not Haredim voting for Shas. So Shas is a Haredi party in many senses, but it's more than anything else a Mizrahi party. So do you think that Shas's enduring success is, is largely thanks to that? Definitely. And you know what's even more amazing, and that's something, you know, Shas families are very different than the Ashkenazi uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox. Very different. I have a lot of Shas family in my family. They all have the regular phones, you know, with WhatsApp, what you're not allowed to have in the Ashkenazi uh, ultra-Orthodox. Which they have, but they keep hidden away in the Yeah, in and the they, will never, they will never be part of groups that someone might, you know, uh, WhatsApp groups. And we have obviously a WhatsApp group of our family. And you can see how... Everyone is legitimate. You can have LGBT, you can have right wing, left wing, you can have everything. Everyone is legitimate. There's something very uh, liberal in a deep way. I heard Moshe Arbel this morning from Shas in response to questions about the High Court of Justice ruling about conservative and reform saying, we love everybody. We pray for everybody. Of course, he pray for them. To become ultra-Orthodox. This is something that could never be discussed in the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox. And I think there's something very uh, liberal and much more open-minded. But you say liberal, mm-hmm. and this is a liberal in a very specific sense. No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the Shasnikim hardcore, okay? Moshe Arbel is the Shasnikim. We're Shasnik. talking about two-thirds of the Shas voters. Exactly. And these two-thirds of the Shas voters, they are much more liberal in their everyday life than you see in their political behavior. Why is their political behavior so ideologically resistant to the liberal, universalist, human rights-oriented, civil rights-oriented values of the left? That's what I want to understand. Because, okay, Okay. they may be more liberal than the Ashkenazi Haredim, but there is an ideological disconnect with the left. It's not just about who gets power. Do you agree? I think there are a few things that are wrapped up together, but all research shows that Mizrahi right-wing are pro-human rights. 
Whenever you do for Palestinians the, too for everyone. Whenever okay. you do, it's all. Um, Nisim Mizrahi did this research. There's a lot of research on it, and it always surprises us. It always surprises everyone. But something that has to say: the left wing in Israel is very national, but they can't say they're national. That's why, by the way, you always have generals heading the left wing because they're national without, you know, it goes without saying. I think and maybe the, you mean nationalist. Nationalist, yeah. yeah. And the right wing and the Mizrahim are very pro-human rights, but they will never say it out loud. But when you go into deep research, it is very clear. And this brings us to another discussion about Israeli society. But definitely the, the Mizrahim are much more liberal then we tend to see them. And that's why I think that there is a potential for real change in Israeli politics and Israeli democracy that has to do with redefining and treating very differently the Mizrahim in Israel. Until that happens, you know, we'll be continuing the discussion you had. One one mandate here, one mandate there, this, that, da, 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 and we're not getting anywhere. Well, it's a very no, no, interesting... No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> That's a very interesting uh, thesis, I would say, or hypothesis, that if, if the power was redistributed properly, we would see more significant shifts on what we consider to be the ideological barriers, which you're saying aren't as big as we think they are. Rachel Azaria, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. only one jiggle I could choose for this episode. It's from the 1984 election. The television... <laughs> of course! Brought, what else? The te- I mean, that really was a vintage year for television uh, campaign ads. Uh, the broadcasts of that year were innovative and different in many key aspects. They were the first to be broadcast in color. And for that occasion, many of the parties invested in the broadcast production like never before. Likud and Labour built elaborate studios and hired the most popular comedians of that period to lampoon their rivals. And of course, parties commissioned top musicians and even composers to produce catchy jingles with flashy graphics We and should videos. say that some of those composers have become classic jingle composers in Israeli campaign history. They totally to have. And 1984 was that year. But one party and a party that most voters had never heard of before went in a very different direction that year. You heard at the moment the election ad begins with the wailing of the shofar. It was the first Knesset election in which Shas, the new Mizrahi Haredi party, contested. And for its first election broadcast, it didn't bother commissioning a new jingle. They wanted their target audience to know that they were all about the past, a past that the Mizrahi immigrants to Israel in the 1950s and 1960s had been told was no longer relevant to life in the brave new Israel, and they may as well forget all about it. And after the shofar calling them back, voices of children singing a piyut, a religious poem, all of them, that is, all of them who had come from North Africa, would have known. A shorer shira lichvoda Torah. I'll write a song to glorify the Torah. The words of Rabbi Raphael Baruch Toledano, the old rabbi of Meknes in Morocco, who had emigrated to Israel in the 1960s and lamented the fact that the young members of his community were drifting away from the Torah in Israel of all places. And while in his last years, Rabbi Toledano failed to do much to get them to come back to their tradition, his short, sweet piyut in the Torah, Mipazikara Zakarovara, more valuable than gold, pure and clear, became a massive hit of Sephardi music with some of its greatest performers like Joe Amar singing it on stage. And for Shas, which wasn't just running for the first time, it was also the first Haredi party which was presenting itself to the voters through this medium. Because unlike the other Haredi party, Agudat Israel, which refused 
to use television broadcast as television as an impure vessel. Shas were totally going to use television and music to get to their potential voters, mainly traditional, not ultra-orthodox Mizrahim, and get them to come home with the music of home. Arguably, the most successful campaign jingle of all Israeli elections, a purely emotional appeal to their family, communal roots, a primal tribal allegiance that works to this day. And that wraps up our 10th election overdose, which you can hear on Haaretz.com, your destination for all fine election coverage, or listen to us on the podcast provider of your preference. I want to thank our special guest again, Rachel Azaria, and our producer, Yonatan Manovich, and my co-host, Anshul Pfeffer, and all of you for listening. Be sure to join us next week for another election overdose. There aren't very many weeks left until the elections, after all, so things will definitely be heating up. Shabbat shalom, salamat from Haaretz in Tel Aviv. <laughs>